Hello everyone, this is Fatou Sisi and welcome to Super Aging Podcast. This podcast tries to promote healthy aging and amplify caregiver voices while raising awareness about dementia. Thank you for listening. Today we have a special guest who I am honored to call my friend and a mentor, Helen Max Dix. Helen currently serves as State Issue Advocacy Director for AARP Wisconsin making sure the voices of the 50-plus is heard in the legislative and administrative process. She is a leading voice for supporting family caregivers and currently serves on the Governor's Tax Force on Caregiving. Her advocacy has included supporting funding and continuation of programs supporting older Wisconsinites such as family care and senior care. In her work to support caregivers, she was a leader in the coalition which advocated for $1 million additional funding for respite in the 2017-2019 budget cycle. Helen graduated from the University of Wisconsin Law School in 1985 and have since been involved in elder law and advocacy on both legal and legislative level. For five years, she served as the director of Elder Law Center and spent four years working for Wisconsin State Senator Judy Rapson. Welcome, Helen. Well, it's nice to be here. To have you here. It's good to be here. All right, thank you. So, to start off, what does super aging means to you? Well, super aging means, in the philosophical sense, it means people being able to age and live the lives they want to live. Uh, free of financial concerns and free of health anxiety. Now, we're all going to end up with some challenges. I like to think I'm successfully aging. I'm 75 years of age. I'm still working a full-time job I love. And I just hope that and wish that everybody could have the opportunity to age in a manner that they're happy with. That is really incredible to be 75 and working full time. That's a true definition of super aging. Very, very inspiring, Ellen. So we are going to be discussing more around COVID issues and elderly issues. So I wanted to know what your opinion is as far as the I know AARP had put out a report recently about COVID and elderly at the nursing home, what all the issues that have been transpired. What is your opinion as far as the future of for-profit versus non-profit facilities in nursing, uh, nursing home industry? Well, I think it's gonna be interesting to look at the statistics after the COVID event. I've always been a big supporter of nonprofit nursing homes, particularly when we used to run county nursing homes, where it was possible to have a stable unionized workforce and people got familiar with everybody. I'm a little distressed about the number of nursing homes that are on the stock market, but what's most distressing of all is that 80% of the nursing homes prior to COVID had violations for infection control. And that's because mm. the penalties were so small that it was just the cost of doing business. And so rather than deal with that, they just paid the fine. So I'm really 
interested in looking at when we're finished with this, how the death rates and how the health of the residents shook out in the nonprofit and the profit world. Okay, so talking about infection control and infection control or infection issues in the nursing home prior to COVID, I'm pretty sure that's exacerbated with COVID. Will there be regulations to, to address that as part of the COVID issues? Well, you know, I think COVID got out of control in nursing homes because, well, two things. One is that you had a lot of people living close together, but number two is that they weren't enforcing any kind of infectious disease control regulations in the nursing home. And, you know, we have to look at how light those fines were. We have to make that meaningful, that when you put the people at jeopardy in your nursing home because of negligence or not following procedures, that it's a meaningful fine and a meaningful consequence. The consequence should be on the owners of the nursing homes, not on the patients. And in the past, it has been on, the fines have been really small in your opinion, right? Yeah, in my opinion, the amount of fines for uh, lack of infectious control are way small. I think we're going to have to really look at the nursing home industry as a whole. And just not the nursing home industry. I think long-term care as a whole, because I think yeah. uh, we don't want people, most people don't want to go to a nursing home. Mm -hmm. And while it's very important for people to receive the medical level of care that they need, even family caregivers are now doing an incredible amount of medical care in home. So we need to look at how we take care of older people. We need to figure out how to keep them safer, how to support their caregivers, and how to pro professionalize the industry. And of course, how to support family caregivers so people can stay at home and in their community. And talking about family caregivers who are providing skill care at home, have they been getting any kind of training to do that? Well, you know, it depends on who you're working with. If you got a good hospital system, maybe. But we're one of the states that doesn't require hospitals to train caregivers on discharge from hospitals. Often the uh, when a person is first away from um, a hospital and going back home with medical care, it's the home health workers that sometimes help train people, um, yes. as you know. Yes. And sometimes, I hate to say this, sometimes family caregivers go, go to YouTube and go to the internet <laughs> on simple things like, you know, how to take care of wounds, how to move a person in bed that is not capable of moving the foot out yeah. and that, that kind of thing. So the, the training for family caregivers is not as good and as strong as it needs to be. So that, that's an area I think the advocate community and the state should be looking at. Yes, and that is one of the recommendations coming out of the caregiver task force. Okay. Is having a program where when you're discharged from a hospital that the caregivers are trained. Okay. And hands-on training, not just a, not just a you know, Watch a piece of paper. And stuff. <laughs> piece of paper doesn't tell you how to give a shot. This self-paced learning. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to formalize that a little bit. Yeah. So what has been the main reason why the pandemic has been so damaging for residents and staffs in the long-term care? 
Well, you know, the nursing home started out in pretty bad shape to begin with. Part of it was, you know, what I said about the infectious disease control, but it was also that we've had a nursing home staffing crisis in this state for a while. And that's true nationally. And so you started out short staffed. Mm -hmm. We were foolish enough in Wisconsin to reduce the training hours and requirements. And rather than professionalizing these jobs, paying them better and giving them better training, uh, we took away um, some of the (laughs) requirements in education. And so we started out. And then when you look at the population, this mm-hmm. pandemic has hit hardest for older people with comorbidities. Yes. Well, a lot of your residents in nursing homes are older people, and obviously they require a nursing home uh, level of care yeah. uh, because yeah. you just don't go to a nursing home because it's a nice place to live. You go there because you have to have certain medical services. Right. So I think the nursing homes were just, uh, it was, they were like a Petri dish waiting to happen. And the infection came and just really took off. So that just unveiled what has been already cooking. Yeah, it was yeah. already a problem. Nursing homes were already a problem. Staffing was already a problem. Infectious control was already a problem. So I think when we get out to the other side of the pandemic, we have to look at the whole industry. Do we have to, where do we take care of people? How do we take care of people? And mm-hmm. how do we treat people in the, in the later years of their lives? Yeah. So talking about, talking about that, I tend to think how we care for elderly and the, the most vulnerable in these places. I think it's more of a, a societal issue, like how we value our elderly and seniors. I have to say, I was pretty appalled at the, the beginning of the pandemic when people kind of took the attitude, well, it's only old folks dying. Let's mm-hmm. open up the economy. I'm not dying for the Dow. I'm not expecting my contemporaries to Dow, die for the Dow. And people underestimate what a critical part of the economy or any kind of economic recovery older people are. We pay a lot in taxes. We are part of the consumer economy and spend a lot of money to keep the economy going. And we make major contributions. We're not just you know, sitting around waiting to die. We're not, not just- at all. You know, the stereotypes of aging in this country are horrible. It is. I think the pandemic brought it out. Yeah, it does. It does. It really has brought it out. And I think the other thing too, with the nursing homes, because of the pandemic that people aren't able to visit their families. And in my experience with facilities, I always tell my people when they are going to facilities and I said to their families, make sure you constantly visiting and also unannounced so no one can predict when you're going to show up. And the reason why I always make those recommendations is that when people know when what time your family member is going to show up, they get you prepared so that, you know, they, when they find you in a better, better situation. So if they can't predict it and they know your family members come in all the time, they tend to be on top of things on your end. So there's definitely a difference between people whose families are visiting regularly and whose families are not visiting regularly. 
in the level of care that they have in these facilities. So with, with COVID, we've seen that um, people aren't able to visit. I always wonder what is the quality of care for the people in, that, in those facilities because no one is going in and out to see what's going on. Well, so, not only is not only are people going not going in and out to see mm -hmm. the ombudsman, they're not going in and out. The surveyors are not going in and out, and I and I think that is all of a problem, of a type. Mm -hmm. I also want to say a word on behalf of what they call the unbefriended elderly. Some of us um, who don't have close family. Um, yes. or geographically close family. You know, there are a lot of people in nursing homes that don't have anyone that visits them even in good times. And right. I would encourage people to either become volunteer ombudsmen or to just become friendly visitors to people in these facilities Isn't because social isolation is a big problem. Oh, it and is a killer. It's a killer. And right yes. now, you know, everybody in nursing homes is isolated. But when families can go back and visit, let's remember there's also people there that don't have visitors and volunteer to be a friendly visitor. Right, you know, right. It just makes a difference both in the care they receive and their general frame of mind. A friendly face is a friendly face. Doesn't matter if matter they're related they to you are, or not. Yeah, I, no, I, I totally agree. There is so many people, if you will, the often seniors who are out there without families or support system that also need that, that kind of support. And there are people available who could volunteer for that. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's really, really important. So do you think post COVID there will be regulations that would say, regardless of what kind of outbreak it is, there's gotta be a point or a contact person who can come in and out to check on their elderlies that are in the facilities. So they're not totally isolated within their space. Well, I think that there's gonna be a total re-looking mm -hmm. at nursing homes, the whole industry, and, mm -hmm. and just not nursing homes, but long-term care in general. Yes. And, you know, it, it shouldn't be, we're sending you somewhere to die. Mm -hmm. it, should, it should be somewhere where you're getting care. And if you can receive care in a different environment that you prefer, you should be able to do that also. I also think we have to, um, deal with the whole question of aging and what we do with older people in this society. There yeah. are a lot of people that are kind of isolated seniors. There are people who need supports in some activities of daily living, but don't necessarily need nursing home care. And right. we just, you know, even just affordable season, senior housing would yeah. be a right step in the direction mm -hmm. of not having to put so many people in nursing homes. So, I mean, we really, have to take a good look at this. I also think it's pretty horrible that we pay zookeepers better than we pay, you know, CNAs. Yeah. I mean, and it's because the one is run by, you know, cities and they're unionized and they have the skills and they get the recognition. People working in nursing homes, um, you know, are not, they could get as much money, if not more, by going down the street and working for Quick Trip or Walmart or one of those places. So we really have to look at how we finance long-term care, how we regulate long-term care, and how we treat the workers in long-term care. 
You know, I, that's a that's such a valuable point because the shortage in the long-term care, shortage of workers in the long-term care industry, it's it's going to be a even more problematic in the next few years. It is a problem already, but I think it's going to be even more of a problem in the next few years. And the fact that their labor is not as value as other labor industries and their work is harder actually than other industries. Do you think they have the other industries have stronger advocates than the, the senior care industry or what is it? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Part of it is the way we finance long-term care. The, the very heavy dependence on government programs for poor people. And really, we don't have any coherent national system. They mm -hmm. tried, the insurance industry tried to do long-term care insurance, but you know, it's one of those things that hasn't been terribly successful and many of the insurance companies are getting out of the industry. Private pay is prohibitively expensive. We really don't have a way to do this. Mm -hmm. So the average family is doing the best they can keeping people at home. But the pandemic made that worse because if you have, if you were afraid to put your person in a nursing home mm -hmm. because of the infection rate and the death yeah. rate, you know, and you kept the person at home, you often have people working from home, you know, have the kids trying to do school from home, mm -hmm. and you had to take extra precautions because of the vulnerability of the older person. So, I mean, the pandemic has really brought it forward. Yes. I think that we also, in this country, have gone to a philosophy of greed. And we care about what people make to be sold. We don't value the service industry as a whole, because when you look at grocery workers and wait staff and people who provide you services, they're not particularly well paid until you get to lawyers and doctors and you know some of people like that. But, but for the most part, the people who are in the service industry to provide support for your daily life are not well paid in this country. I think the pandemic showed us who you needed. You didn't need your lawyer. You needed yes. your doctor and you needed your grocery store guy. That is true. So uh, the, the other thing, Helen, you mentioned is reimbursement. Talking about re reimbursement, I always, I always, always wonder why is it that the federal level in reimbursement, for instance, the VA reimbursement or the Medicare reimbursement, there is such a big gap between that and state level reimbursements like Medicaid. There is such a big gap in that. And I always wondered why that is. And the second piece is that, well, I'll let you answer that first. So we cannot get into this reimbursement thing because I think the caregiver shortage, there is a, a, so many other issues that are to it and not paying them enough is definitely one of them that are not valuing the work that they provide, giving them the respect that they so very much deserve. It's another thing. But the reimbursement when it comes to, say, 
provider side. So I'm going to put on my provider hat a minute, okay? So if you're getting reimbursed by Medicaid and then you are supposed to pay your caregiver for that and Medicaid isn't paying you enough to, to pay that, how do we reconcile that? I think state needs to look at that as part of, as we move forward in trying to address this major issue that we have. So I'll leave it up to you now. <laughs> well, I think part of the problem is if you listen to our politicians, they yes. think the one number one value in this country is cutting taxes. It isn't. It should be providing basic care for people, and that yes. includes health care mm -hmm. and food and shelter. But they have, over the last several decades, gone on this austerity philosophy, which mm. requires us to pay less money in, so there's less money to spend out. And when they make the decision on how to spend it, there's this sense that poor people and older people take up too much of the budget. Mm. We don't. We don't. And True. in fact, I don't think a philosophy that's based on failure to provide care is a sustainable philosophy. But that's what's gotten us to where we are today. A lot of the, I mean, it's true in healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's true in, look at the problems we're having feeding people during the pandemic. Look yes. at how many people live only one paycheck away from abject yes. poverty. Absolutely. Look how stretched all the poverty programs are. So I think we have to kind of look at our attitude towards taxes. Are we willing to pay that money in to take care of our fellow human beings? And for me, clearly, the answer has always been yes. But if you look at your local politicians, and I think more of us have to look at our politicians and yes. say, don't send me a tax break of you know $100 that's going to mm -hmm. get lost in my thing. Spend that money on these programs. If enough of us said that, there'd be enough money to fund these programs adequately. Couldn't agree with you more. So in one of the AARP articles, it did mention that, that this was early spring. So there has been over 6,000 people around the nation that have been calling to complain about cares and issues with their loved ones in facilities and stuff. I'm wondering if those complaints now, did they stop? That's one piece. But then I also wanted to know, is the complaints from just the nursing homes or within long-term care in general, including community care? I think there's complaints everywhere right now. Okay. Um, let's talk about community care for a minute. Okay. You know, the people who are providing services in community care through family care and IRIS and through home health services. Yes. Unfortunately, a lot of those people aren't assigned one place. They move from household to household to household. Correct. And right now, older people are reluctant to let people in their home because of the spread of the disease. Yes. Um, and some of those people end up being carriers because of the nature of their work. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're having problems with those circumstances also. We don't have as good of numbers because things like assisted living facilities and home and community-based services are regulated by the state and not by CMS. CMS regulates the nursing homes, so we have better statistics there. But mm -hmm. it's, it's, we have problems all the way. I think the pandemic has really 
highlighted all the weaknesses in our system. I mean, right. it's also highlighted the kindness of a lot of individuals, the numbers of people that are doing the grocery shopping for their older neighbors. And yes. you know, there's all kinds of heartwarming stories you hear about how we're reaching out to each other. Right. But for systems, our systems were, were not okay. designed um, to meet this kind of crisis. And we, our safety net was pretty frayed before the pandemic and the pandemic mm -hmm. just showed how bad it is. That's very true. What is happening in other places is, uh, if you compare it to Wisconsin, where does Wisconsin stand in, in, those, in that process? Well, you know, in the very beginning, um, nursing homes are where we have the best reliable statistics. And when we started this out, I remember having conversations with people in the nursing home industry, pointing out that we had one of the lowest infection rates in the country. That was at the beginning. Okay. About a month ago, we were top five in the nation for infections. We were in horrible shape. Oh boy. Our statistics are coming around, but we're still higher than the national average. So we're having lots, I mean, Wisconsin, there was a time that Wisconsin was the leading state when it came to programs for the elderly. We're mm. no longer there. And we're oh. not doing very well through this pandemic for older people. Well, we need to bring that back. We really need to bring that back. Do you think we are getting worse in Wisconsin because of all the political conflicts that we have with max mandates and all that stuff? So do, do, you, do you think that has anything to do with why Wisconsin goes from doing better to now doing worse? I do. You know, there's a fundamental difference in this state about what the role of government is. Mm -hmm. And some people see the role of government as creating a safety net, providing for the public health and taking care of people in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. Other people at the other extreme say that the government has no business doing anything um, except, you know, raising a, a military and, uh, you know, a few other little things, helping out businesses and things like that. And so we're caught in, in that kind of thing. And Wisconsin, Wisconsin is Wisconsin. It does things its own way. We're the only legislature that chose not to even show up and pass any legislation after the initial piece. So that was kind of amazing. It was kind of amazing to see um, uh, parts of the government go to court against other parts of the government saying, you can't help people, you can't declare this a public health crisis and the courts upheld them. So you had to live with the answer. But I think one of the reasons we're so out of control is that we didn't have an enforceable mitigation, organized mitigation response to the crisis. Mm -hmm. Now I have to say this, before we criticize state government, we should take a look at what was going on in the federal government. Uh, yes, yes. And so, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like we had a good model to follow or that there was national uniformity right. or there was attempts to keep the spread along state lines. So government response to this pandemic showed that the philosophy of keeping the government out of people's lives under all circumstances, maybe it's not such a good one. It's maybe there one. is a meaningful role, particularly in public health for the government, particularly in roles of the safety net for food, shelter, and healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so I think the political climate in Wisconsin 
made it more difficult and more challenging. The thing is, it isn't over yet. So, you know, the vaccine has kind of changed yes. the attitude. And I think we have had a change of administration. So we might have a, a more, it appears even this week that we're getting a more robust plan about how to get more vaccine out, about how to encourage people to use masking and, and, and that kind of thing. So maybe, maybe, you know, as the weather improves and the number of people that get vaccinated, maybe as the sunshine returns, we can be more optimistic that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I so do hope. So I want to go back to, I want to go back to community care because while there was, for us, our experience have been at the beginning, we have a whole bunch of people suspending their services because they were just worried that people coming in and out will bring the virus, which is very much understandable and legit worrisome. So, but as time goes on, as we are speaking, now this is long-term. It's no longer, this is going to take couple months or three months and it's all been going to be gone. We know that COVID is here and it's going to be here for a while. Then we've started people, seeing people reinstating their services. And I would say all of our people reinstate their services after maybe three, four months into the pandemic, the people who had suspended. But I, I mean, there is less of the infection spread if we compare community care, like our, our type, uh, home, home care base, the infection rate spread is way lower within that community base than it is in the facilities, given even though some of the staff who are still working within the community are the same staff working in the facilities. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the difference is the facilities, you have a lot of older people that mm -hmm. have health challenges, living close together and breathing together. Mm -hmm. You take a home healthcare worker and you send them into a private home. Yes. You have one older person with comorbidities, maybe two. And so that the, the ability of people to spread the disease among themselves or to come into a, a, an environment where there are a lot of susceptible people is very different. You have a lot of more susceptible people hanging out together in nursing homes than you do in home health care. And my, to, to follow up on that, what do you see the feature of home care or home health or community-based care? Given, I think with COVID, one of the things also is that caregivers are scared to go back to work and the facilities. What do you see the feature of both facilities, say nursing homes, and the feature of community-based care like home care? What's your take on that? Well, you know, ARP has long been a component of better and more robust home and community-based services. And the reason for that is our members, people want to they want to age in place. They want to be oh, in their communities. Uh, mm -hmm. People don't, you know, you don't say, you know, when you wrote your essay, what am I going to be when I grow up? You didn't put down nursing home. Nursing residents. homes, no. Nope. You know, so people, people want to be 
in the home. So that's one of the reasons we've encouraged it. It's right. less expensive to keep people in their homes. It's right. better for their mental health um, as far as the quality of care. Yeah, and the ability to stay into an intergenerational environment is better if you're not in an institution. Right. A lot of people thought assisted living facilities were going to be like the bridge, but you know, assisted living facilities turned out to be nursing home light. They weren't as well regulated. Yes. They had just as many people together. They were expensive. And um, people are isolated by age again. So I think, and congregate living. So I think that people are going to be, I think there's a great future for home health care. I also think, you know, speaking as a 75-year-old, I belong to a generation that uh -huh. isn't easily regimented. And we're people, you know, we'll do communes before we do nursing homes. We're not going to be, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's our history. That's our past. And, you know, and I think that people for all the ageism that's going on, I least work in an office where I have someone who's under 30, who's a friend. And uh -huh. so if we can get more valuing and more doing intergeneration and seeing the values of all those things. I think home health care and uh, community-based supports. I also think that the pandemic brought out the idea of an old-fashioned barter system. Mm. And that yeah. you know, money wasn't <laughs> the only way to do oh, things. Oh, I you haven't know? had that since high school. <laughs> barter system, yes. <laughs> I think that's going to come back. Yes, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's true. We, we looked a lot more about how we can help each other mm -hmm. and we created services and you didn't want strangers coming into your home. So were there friends that could help or whatever? So, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think there's, I think there are going to be some interesting societal changes when we come out of the pandemic. And I hope it's, going to be to a kinder world and it's going to be to a world where we're more interconnected both generationally and just geographically if you live in my city you should be somebody I feel responsible for if right. you live in my state I should be wishing you a good good life and all this you know a roof over your head food on the table and health right. so the notion of we're in this together is is definitely we are in this together and it's going to be stronger and moving forward that's a way to to that's the lens that we should all be using to see what's going on yeah For, there was funding about 4.9 billion that was sent to the nursing home industry has AARP sort of figured out or checked into how those funds are being used are they mis are they mishandling those funds and what what do you know about what's going on there and we don't should... know anything about what's going on there and neither does anybody else mm. and so i think one of the important things after the pandemic and not only for the nursing home industry but particularly for the nursing home industry is we have to look at monies received and how it was spent did right. you use it to pay your stockholders? Did you give your executives a bonus? Or did you actually spend it on patient care? Were people dying while you were spending the money elsewhere? That was what the money was intended for. Let's make sure it was used that way. 
what are your thoughts about money being put into stocks? You know, I was a little horrified. I saw some nursing home, I believe it was in Florida. Uh -huh. They let their donors to their facility jump the line to get vaccines oh. over their own patients. That was just, that's just unacceptable. Oh, unacceptable. And healthcare facilities should be run for the benefit of the patient. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, wow. All the faces of, how do I say this? Privilege. Yeah, all the faces of privilege that we are seeing. I mean, it's unbelievable. Pretty amazing. Yeah. So what is AARP's priorities moving into the 2021 as far as the COVID issues? Well, you know, I think we're working to make sure that anybody who wants to get a vaccine can get a vaccine, <laughs> making sure that there's, you know, information out there that's reliable. And so that's one thing. We, of course, always fight for healthcare access. We're going to, once the whole question of nursing home reform comes up, we're obviously going to be there. And, you know, I was part of the caregiver task force. Mm -hmm. that the governor had about caregiving and that is coming out that came out with a whole series of recommendations about how to improve the lot of both the paid care workers and the unpaid care workers so the family you know the care force is really two groups is the unpaid there's like six hundred thousand um unpaid caregivers here yeah and then there's, um, you know, all the people who work in the industry, both in home care and in nursing homes and stuff. And mm -hmm. then there's the places we overlap. All of us need to be elevated and supported in our services. And I think that that recommendations coming out of that task force mm -hmm. are very good. Some of them may have to wait a little down the road, but some of them can be implemented relatively quickly. Okay. And I think we have to when this is done, I mean, there's a part of us is that's going to want to rejoice and go out and eat dinner with friends. But there's a part of us that has to sit down with a very analytical mind and say, what happened and what can we do to make sure some of that stuff never happens again? Happen again. Yeah, definitely. I think that needs to happen. And I think the nation needs to heal in the way that people have lost so many lives that it's, that shouldn't happen at all. I think there's gotta be a way to make this better in the future. What do you think, what do you see the country moving forward or in particular our state moving forward, especially with our state? With, with our state, it's very divided. The people who are supposed to make these decisions are not seeing eye to eye. It makes it very, very difficult to serve their constituent because if they're not seeing eye to eye, things are not moving forward. So constituent services are not being met. How do you see us healing and moving forward to ensure that these things never happen again? Well, I think that we took some steps in the right direction this week. You know, on a federal level, they're coming out with a more comprehensive plan. Yes. Looking at the places where the federal government has authority, mm -hmm. they're looking at ways they can support up the ramp up of vaccines and the delivery of vaccines. 
And I think that's a big step in the right direction. Okay. If they come up with a master plan, maybe they can get the states to follow on the state level of what they have to get done. And then quite frankly, those of us that are citizens and voters have to say to our elected officials, knock yeah. it off. Just knock it off. We got a crisis here. We don't want to hear these bumper stickers, slogans that you put on your car. We want something to be done. We don't want our friends and neighbors dying or infected with this disease because you don't want the responsibility of passing laws or funding programs. That's true. But here is here is one thing I want to add to that. I think we are not keeping our lawmakers accountable enough because communities that they serve are not engaging with them in as much as they should be pushing for things. And I, I don't know, I always feel like people are intimidated by their presence or even interacting with them or asking them to do something. Would that be part of AARP's agenda to educate people like the communities and push for more advocates to get into the game and, and make things right? Well, you know, you're singing my song here because, you know, <laughs> I do a lot of the grassroots organizing and the advocacy here in Wisconsin. And we have a group we call our Red Shirts. Yes. They're volunteer advocates. You're always in the capital. <laughs> and um, we do activate our members. We do send them emails and information about what's going on. If there's a, a particular issue that we're flagged as important, we give people the opportunity to you know, let their legislature know they're concerned about it. But I think everybody has to do that. Right. You know, I do it on behalf of people that are 50 and older. A lot of people um, are kind of help very strong on kids' issues or environmental issues. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter what the issue is, but I want everybody who's an activist to take five minutes and say, I'll do this because it's important to me, but mm -hmm. what is important to the people who can't speak or who mm. aren't articulate or who right. have Alzheimer's right. or who are isolated and don't have the capacity to speak for themselves mm. and give some of your advocacy time to those people beside your own self-interest. What a great message to send. Everybody needs to hear that because we need more voices in this game to what's happening with the those without the voice so you said it more eloquently we we need them well thank you very much one more question for you helen what is it that you do for self-care and how do you practice compassion on yourself well you know I have a little bit of escapism. I try, I'm trying a new program of not answering emails or the phone from okay. six at night to six in the morning. I don't know if I'll manage to do it. Good for you. Yeah, I that's do a good. lot of reading so that, you know, I can go to another world where I don't have to solve all these problems or speak on behalf of other people. <laughs> and I've really made an effort to keep in touch with as many friends as possible. If I can't nice. see you, can I give you a phone call? Can I, you know, send you an email or something, you know, so, or, or whatever, so that, you know, so that when the light is at the end of the tunnel, I've kept in touch with people and things just haven't disappeared. The other thing, of course, is I get a lot of satisfaction out of my job. 
and uh, the fact that I can talk to those legislators and say, come on guys, we're here, we can stay home. Maybe that us old folks are staying home because of the pandemic, but don't for one minute think I'm not watching what you're doing and then I'm not gonna get emails and phone calls and messages into your office and getting the word out to my folks what you're doing and not doing. There isn't a better person to do that. And you do it so incredibly well. Thank you for everything you do, Helen. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for doing an interview. It means so much to me. And I think everybody- I'm always glad to express my opinion on these issues. <laughs> That's for sure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to Super Agent Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the program. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out by leaving a comment. Contacting us via email at superagentpodcast at gmail.com or connect with us through social media. And if you haven't done so already, please feel free to subscribe on any of your favorite podcast listening site, Apple, Podbeans, Spotify, Stretcher, or anywhere you listen to your podcast and leave us a review. Until next time, remember that self-care is self-love. Take good care.